So our current series is called The Given Kingdom. And today we're going to be looking at a story that tells us just how given it is. Now I've been advised that I should talk a little bit about the title of my sermon. Um, The word resting, I was told, is not something that everyone is familiar with. That surprised me. I do find occasionally I'm, I'm comfortable with a word that's not familiar to everyone, and I think one of the reasons for that is I read old books a lot, so sometimes there's just words that are not as common anymore. Resting, to rest something, is to, to take it, right? To, to try to grasp it or pull it away. And so what we're talking about today is a story where we see someone trying to grab hold of and take God's blessing. So we're going to be in Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34. We're going to read it together in a moment, but I I just want to say a few words here at the beginning. Isaac is not a big figure in the book of Genesis. We talked about Rebekah last week. We're, We're not really focusing on any of the specific to Isaac stories, and the reason for that is mostly what we get is to tell us that he is a lot like his father. In most of the stories he's in, either he's He's Abraham's son, or he's Jacob and Esau's father, and that's kind of his role. But when we hear about Isaac himself, we're mostly hearing that he's a lot like Abraham. He does things right like Abraham does, and he does things wrong like Abraham does. So we're going to go ahead and stand and read Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. You can follow along with me on the screen or with your Bible. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Badan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking home stew or cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. You may be seated. 
So Rebecca is pregnant. And she feels some trouble within her womb. So she goes and, and she prays to God because she doesn't understand. This pregnancy was a response to prayer. So how could there be trouble with it, she thinks. And she's told she has twins and that the older will serve the younger. And I imagine that startled her because in this time and in this place, that was backwards. There were very clear expectations about how the eldest sibling, if they are both boys, right, the eldest brother would have privileges, would have respect, would be the one that the line passed through, that the younger brother was lesser in the eyes of the society. And so what should happen is that the younger should serve the older. But God flips this upside down. And this is a thread that happens throughout Scripture. Frequently, the one who should be lesser is the greater, and vice versa. We even see this principle play out in the New Testament with leadership. In John chapter 13, we see the Lord of all creation. After dinner with his disciples, his apostles, puts a, a towel around his waist and on his knees washes their feet. The master of the universe serving. And we're told also that whomever would be first among us should be last, and the last first. This isn't just something that happens here. This is something that is important to God. We worship a God who flips the expected dynamics of power upside down, and often will use the weaker to lead the stronger. I think there are a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is that I think the stronger a person is, the more tempted they are to rely on themselves and not on him. Now, it says that Rebecca favored Jacob. And that makes sense to us. She'd received an answer to her prayer, saying that the younger would lead the older. The older would serve the younger. And that seems to have led to some favoritism. We would certainly say this is not good today to so clearly have favorites among twins. But it is what it is here in the story. We don't know why Isaac didn't follow Rebecca's lead there. Maybe he, she never told him about the answer to prayer she received, or, or perhaps Isaac was not moved by that to favor the younger over the older. But we see that Isaac preferred Esau, and Rebekah favored Isaac. And so when the time came and Rebekah gave birth, the first baby was named Esau. Now Esau means, some, the word is very similar to Harry, right? It says he was kind of covered in hair. And so like our name, Harry, right, H-A-R-R-Y, it's, it's one letter off of the word Harry, meaning with lots of hair. Esau is the same way. It's just one letter off of the word Harry in Hebrew. They name him Harry because he has lots of hair. And then she names the second baby Jacob. You are left with the impression that these names were come up with when the babies were born. Because Jacob is named heel grabber. That's what the name Jacob means, someone who grabs by the heel. Not a very prestigious name to go around and tell people that you were given by your parents. What did your parents name you? Well, I'm Harry, and I'm heel grabber. 
but his name is a prediction. You see, we see that he, he followed his brother out and was even grasping him by the heel then, the idea being that he's, he's somehow not doing the work himself of being born. He's letting his brother pull him along. And that seems to be a thread that we see throughout Jacob's life as well. His name is a prediction. He's going to grow up knowing that he's been especially blessed, and he's going to spend his life using his wit and his resources trying to wrest what isn't his from the people around him, taking from other people because he feels like that's what he has to do to make God's promises come true. It's the same mistake that Abraham and Sarah made with Hagar. And when you're trying to make God's promises come true on your own power, that will always go badly. Now this story, even before we get to the birthright piece of it, teaches us something very important about who our God is as we read just about Jacob and Esau in the womb before they're born. We learn something important. In the womb, where neither baby had done a thing to earn anything, we find out God already was giving favor to Jacob. There's absolutely no doubt, this may be the best example in Scripture of someone who could not have earned their stance before God. It was given to him literally before he was born. A special calling and favor from God already on him. One thing that we hear a lot, and it's true, is that we cannot earn our way into a relationship with God. We cannot earn our way into forgiveness. We cannot earn his love or his grace. We hear that a lot. We know it, but I don't think it always sinks down into our bones. I don't think it really sticks. And sometimes that's because we we don't really know deep in our bones what it means to be in a relationship with God, to be his child, to be favored and blessed. Sometimes, because we don't really understand what, what a relationship is like where we can't earn anything. We're very accustomed to earning things, even in our friendships, even among our family. We behave well, and we're, we're, we're treated well in return. It's a foreign concept to not be able to earn anything. And there's this story that lives deep within us, deep in our souls, deep in our bones. At least it does in mine, that I know isn't true, but I still struggle with it. The story is this, that if I am good, if I am just good, if I do the right things, if I behave well, if I follow the rules, then God will be pleased and he will give me all manner of good things. And by good things, of course, I mean an easy life filled with material blessings. Now, I know that's not true. You, hopefully, know that's not true. But many of us still struggle deep within our sinful natures with this idea that we can somehow earn richer blessings from God. This is a misunderstanding of both God's love and God's grace. This came up for me. I realized how much I struggled with this for the first time when I started to experience serious loss. 
I've said this here before, 2017 and 2018 were not good or easy years for Lisa and I. They were very hard. We went through a lot of loss. And then we spent 2019, or most of 2019, trying to kind of heal and get, get back to a healthier place. It was funny, as 2020 became what 2020 became, Lisa and I had a few conversations where we would say, yeah, this is, this is hard, but man, this year's a lot easier than the, the previous ones had been for us. There was a, a whole lot less taken from us that was dear to our heart in 2020 than in the years before. And in those moments, we're struggling with loss, where we lost another baby, or when we lost my father, when we were struggling with all of that, there were those times I would find this deep conviction that it was wrong somehow. Because God, I had been good. I had done good things. And I would have this conversation between my head and my heart where my head would tell me nowhere are we promised that we will not struggle or have loss or hardship. And yet my heart, the part that was not totally redeemed and given over to Jesus, would say, but I've been so good. Knowing, of course, I haven't been perfect. Knowing, of course, that I'm not sinless. Not saying any of that, but yet this fiction lives on in my soul. Those of you that have struggled with hardship may know what I mean. Perhaps not. Those of you that haven't really gone through times of hardship before may have no idea what this is like, but it is something to prepare yourself for when the story our culture tells us that if you just work hard and do right, then only good things will happen wells up from within you. And even though you know it's a lie, yet it persists. And it's a struggle. Now the Apostle Paul, he tells us clearly that this is nonsense. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39, I want to read these today. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's you and me, brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, but God, if that's true, if no one can be against us because you are for us, how could we still struggle? How could we still endure hardship? Paul goes on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. He says nothing can separate us from Jesus. And what he's saying in this passage, to, to kind of sum it up, there's just so much here, but, but one of the things that he's saying here is that those of us who belong to Jesus, who have repented, who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, been forgiven, received the Holy Spirit, been adopted into the family of God, nothing can take us away from him. No hardship or struggle, nothing can take us away from him. And we hear that and we say, Amen. And then we come upon the hardship and the struggle and we say, wait a second. Why am I going through these things? Paul tells us right here, these are part of the Christian life. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. The promise we have isn't that we won't experience those things. The promise we have is that despite them, we will never be alone because we belong to him. He will intercede for us. He will walk alongside us. He will be with us in the midst of the struggles and the trials and the tests and the temptations. He is always there. Christian, hear me. No matter what you are going through, God is there. You are not loved less because you are going through a struggle. You are not loved less because you're in the midst of difficulty. He has not turned away from you because you're enduring hardship. Nowhere does he promise us an escape from those things until we leave this earth for heaven. You see, Jacob had God's favor before he was even born. And yet he lived a life with a lot of struggle. Now, much of it he brought on himself, which is a whole other conversation to have. But the point is this. Nowhere does God promise us that we can earn an easy life from him. That's not what any of it's about. Nowhere does he promise us that if we're good and if we're his, that we will not experience hardship. Those promises are not here. So there's a few things I want you to get from this. First is this. Our relationship with God does not rest on us being good enough. Thank goodness. You see, sometimes we think that God's favor works like a swivel chair. I've used this example before, but we, we think that if I just go to church enough, and if I read my Bible enough, and if I pray enough, and if I give enough tithing, if I do all the things, then God looks at me and he smiles. But when I stumble or sin, he turns away from me and rejects me. And so what I have to do to maintain God's favor is just be good all the time, or else I'll be rejected. Now, of course, it is important in the Christian life that we do those things, that we are loving and compassionate. It's important that we are part of a Christian fellowship, that we spend time in the Word, in prayer. Of course, all those things are important, but they're not important so that we'll earn anything from Him, because that's just not how His love works. The Bible tells us that He looks on us and smiles. He delights in us and sings. The God who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows deep down in the rotten core of us, all the bad, 
more than we do. The God who has seen the worst things we've ever done and already knows the worst things we will ever do has already forgiven them, looks on us, and smiles. And that's not because we've earned his smile. Now, is something wrong if a person has accepted Jesus Christ and is living a life with no attempt to do good? Yes, there's something very wrong with that. If a person is living in the midst, unrepentant of a sinful lifestyle, is something wrong? Yes, there's something very wrong with that. But we do not earn God's favor. We are called and empowered and led to goodness, but we do not earn his love. See, Jacob goes on to to swindle his brother out of his rights as the firstborn, to wrest from him something that belonged to him. Because Esau, apparently, doesn't take such things seriously and has no control over his physical urges. It's a weird story. And it just leaves, the only thing I can make of it is that Esau doesn't take his birthright seriously. He doesn't consider it a big deal. He's probably a young man who thinks his father's going to live for a very long time yet and cannot fathom the consequences of such a thing. Or, like brothers do, he's making a promise he has no intent, intent to honor. Either one is possible. But we see this man who's sort of led and ruled by his physical urges. And Jacob swindles, uses them against him to swindle him. He even uses deceit to try to earn God's blessings. These moral failings, and yet he is favored. God is not on a swivel chair. We we heard through Abraham how he made mistake after mistake, and God did not turn away from him. We see this in Jacob too. Even when he messes up, God does not turn away. God will not turn away from you. If you wrestle with guilt over something that you've done, or shame for a sin struggle you're currently in the midst of, hear me. God is not turning away from you. He's with you. He loves you. He's present and will never leave you. He loves you so much, he wants to be with you all the time. Nobody loves anyone enough that they literally want to be with them every moment of every day forever, except God loves us that much. He does not turn away. But being loved by God does not protect us from hard things. There's a passage that comes to mind for me with this. John 16, says this. Jesus speaking to the apostles. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. He doesn't say you might. He doesn't say that, that you might just coast on through with no troubles. He says, in this world you will have trouble, and we know it was true. His apostles whom he was speaking of, many of them, almost all of them, all but one, were martyred. And in terrible ways. Some were imprisoned for long periods of time. We know the apostle Paul, who was not present but became an apostle, certainly talks about several of the struggles that he had. He did not have 
what anyone could call an easy life. Obedience to the Lord, belonging to him, is no promise of ease. But there's something more important, vastly more important, than the absence of struggle or hardship. There's something that we would want so much more than that, and it's this. It's God's presence with us. He even tells us that when those hard things come about, he will use them to lead us closer to him if we allow him to. In the moment of crisis, in the moment of hardship, we can either draw away from God in anger that he would allow the bad thing to happen, or we can draw nearer to him, grab hold more tightly, and be closer to him than we ever thought possible. The Spirit will empower and encourage us and draw us to that. He doesn't prevent the hard things, but he allows us to draw nearer to him because of them. You see, the kingdom of God cannot be earned. And Christian, if you feel like you've earned your way into God's family, you've missed something very important, because you haven't. We must recognize our are being incapable of doing such a thing to even be able to repent. And when we repent and receive his forgiveness, the kingdom is given as a gift. And then we're called to live as a citizen of his kingdom and not this one. So as you are here today, my prayer for you is that you will realize, sense, Feel, know the deep, wide, wonderful love of God for you. That you will lose any feeling like his love depends on your performance in some way. And that you will know when problems come, this does not mean God is angry with you. Because you can know that in the midst of the storm, He will be with you, always. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you, always thankful for blessings. God, you are so good. Those of us that are here today are in all manner of different situations, Lord. Some of us are just not really in the midst of much hardship. It may even be hard for us to imagine struggling with hardship. Lord, protect us. Prepare us to look for you even in the midst of the storm. Others who are here might be in the deepest sadness or sorrow that they can remember. They may be in the midst of the storm now. Help us, Lord, to remember that you are never far. And that in these times of struggle, we can draw near to you. Help us to remember, Lord, that you are not surprised by our struggles, by our pains. And you don't turn away from us because of them, and they're not the result of your anger. 
but that, Lord, we can draw nearer to you. The sweetness of fellowship than ever before. Speak to our hearts in the midst of the storm and remind us that you offer us peace. We pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.